Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we-just-hit-a-million-orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need-to-know. Inflation acceleration... U.S. prices rise at the fastest pace in nearly 40 years. Democracy Day dig. China calls Joe Biden's summit a political maneuver. Sense times stumble. Chinese AI firms listing in doubt amid U.S. blacklist fears. And... Star DJ Steve Aoki talks NFTs, the metaverse... And his mother. It's Friday. Let's make a move. A warm welcome to another first move Friday and another week filled with Omicron variant fixation. Our scientific community deserve a standing ovation. Today, another source of market preoccupation, consumer inflation under investigation. US prices rising at 6.8% year over year in line with expectations, but at the fastest pace since back in 1982. Now, if we strip out energy and food, so get to what we call the core rate of inflation, that rose to a 30-year high, and that's a problem. Now, President Biden's already promised the worst is over, and we'll see that in future reports, but the big question for investors is whether the Fed Chief Jay Powell agrees. The US Central Bank could double the tapering in bond purchases at their meeting in next week. If I put that into some sense or English, bond buying could be over by March. Now, futures still holding on to gains after a pullback Thursday, and we're still higher on the week. Europe, however, cautious as COVID's economic fallout becomes clearer. Reuters is saying that the European Central Bank could boost stimulus. So we're talking about going in the opposite direction to the Federal Reserve at least for temporarily uh, at its meeting next week, to help the region get past these uncertain times. Okay, let's get to the drivers. And another frantic Friday as powers, prices power ahead. Paul and Monica joins me now. Paul, we've got a Friday feeling going on here right now. Talk us through the price pressures and what exactly was driving these numbers higher. Yeah, this is obviously a very hot uh, inflation read that we got this morning, Julia. Consumer prices overall, as you mentioned, 6.8% year-over-year increase is the highest since 1982, the fastest rate of inflation. Unsurprisingly, because we've heard all the stories about higher oil prices and gas prices, that was a big part of the spike. 33.3% year-over-year jump. That is not a misprint in just energy prices. So that is something that I I imagine a lot of consumers are hoping we get some relief going forward as, uh, you know, potentially 
we've already seen oil prices come down a little bit, but prices were up sharply across the board. You saw it with food, you saw it with shelter costs. I mean, housing prices, as we all know, have definitely been continuing the surge, even with potential uh, calls for you know the housing market strength to finally end in 2022. Yeah, and you've seen the spin, certainly from the White House, to say, look, we've seen the worst. Prices are going to come down. You have to be patient to some degree. The question is, in the face of the latest concerns over COVID and the Omicron variant, what the Federal Reserve decides to do. Does it decide to accelerate the pullback of stimulus here, perhaps even talk about the outlook for rate rises? Or do they add some caution of their own in here? Yeah, I think it's going to be very fascinating to see, Julia, what uh, Jerome Powell and other members of the Fed say about this. We have a meeting uh, next week uh, when the Fed is going to give its most recent economic projections as well. I think the market take is that, as you noted, you know, maybe the Fed accelerates the taper and potentially looks at rate hikes. And normally that is something that I, th- I think would spook the markets, but you're seeing futures still up this morning. And I get the sense that right now, what everyone wants is a return to normalcy. And while these sticker shock prices are extremely unsettling, it is in many respects a reflection of the fact that the economy is getting back to a more normalized level post-COVID, even with all the concerns about the Omicron variant. So it is this sort of perverse good news is you know, bad news for the consumer is good news for investors, which, you know, often winds up being the case on Wall Street. Yeah, there's good news among the bad here. It's just a challenge in the interim. And how long that interim lasts has been a critical question now for what feels like too long. Well, longer for consumers. That <laughs> yeah, we don't use that word anymore. $10 now in the uh, transitory swear box. Paula Monica, <laughs> happy Friday. Let's move on. Censure from China. Beijing calling the U.S.'s democracy summit a, quote, political maneuver to safeguard its own interests. Today is the second day of the inaugural summit hosted by President Biden. And John Harwood joins us on this story. Great to have you with us, John. The U.S. sold this as safeguarding democracy in the West, shoring up what is challenged at this moment. China views this as weaponizing democracy and said as much coming into this. And the salt in the wound here, the invitation to Taiwan, which clearly the Chinese weren't going to be happy about. Well, surely uh, we're getting criticism from China and Russia because they are two of the principal uh, targets of this session. The uh, authoritarian leaders there uh, posing a challenge to Western interests in various ways. And what Joe Biden is trying to say uh, is that uh, uh, the United States has a role to uh, show the world that democracies can still work. Now, China and Russia obviously have some ammunition for charges of hypocrisy because of the democratic backsliding within the United States. January 6th insurrection, getting more and more details about what can only be described as an attempted coup. But it didn't succeed. Uh, the Democratic election prevailed. Uh, and what Joe Biden is trying to say is the United States still has the credibility to lead the world on this issue. And the administration also hopes that the um, uh, 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 existence of this summit and the message that he's sending will inspire uh, more protection for democracy at home in the United States, which has been a big challenge and will be an ongoing challenge. And remains a key focus in this country and beyond, of course, John. What's on the agenda today? Well, it's more uh, discussion that we don't expect a a concrete uh, result. We had Joe Biden uh, speaking yesterday 
and trying to rally these 110 nations. Uh, there is no deliverable coming from this. This is uh, mostly a, a gab fest that is designed to send a message. Uh, the president is going to be attending a, a funeral service this morning for Bob Dole, his former colleague uh, in the Senate, a longtime Republican leader who uh, passed away a few days ago. Uh, but this is a, an ongoing effort. Joe Biden has made the elevation of democracy and the um, example of democracy pitted against authoritarian regimes the backbone of his uh, diplomatic message all year long. So this two-day summit is part of that, and that's going to continue. Yeah, you know, this was a perfect time to talk about the things that undermine democracy, the use of technology to undermine democracy. Um, I truly hope it is more than it. What did you call it? A gab fest. <laughs> John, great to have you with us. Thank you. You bet. Since time, time's up. Chinese AI startup set for an imminent listing on the Hong Kong Stock Exchange, but reports suggest they may be added to the U.S. government's entity list restricting foreign investment. Selena Wang is on this story for us. And Selena, let's be clear, the Beijing subsidiary of this company, I believe, is already on the entity list. What we may be talking about here is the rest of the business being added. What is SenseTime and what activities may it have enabled to result in being added? to this entity list potentially? Well, yeah, Julia, this company is certainly used to controversy. It's been mired in it over the past few years. This is one of the world's most valuable artificial intelligence companies with an investor list that includes Alibaba, SoftBank. It generates hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue every year by deploying technology like facial recognition, smart city solutions, and driverless cars. Now, according to several reports first reported by the Financial Times, the U.S. government is going to add sense time to its list. It's Chinese military industrial complex companies investment blacklist that would bar Americans from investing in this company. We have reached out to the U.S. Treasury Department as well as Sense Time for comment. Now, as you say, in 2019, the Beijing subsidiary of Sense Time was already placed on this entities list that barred the company from buying American products or American technology without a special license. It was put on that list for its alleged involvement in human rights violations in Xinjiang. Now, Sense Time is best known for its facial recognition technology. This technology is widely used across China, including in Xinjiang, where the U.S. alleges that as many as 2 million Uyghurs and other Muslim minority groups are detained in internment camps. This is an allegation that Beijing forcefully denies, claiming that these are actually vocational training centers. Since time in a recent investment report tried to clarify this, saying that they were in compliance with Chinese laws for their sales in the Xinjiang region and that the income from those sales were less than 1% over the last three years. The income from those sales were less than 1% for three years, Julia. Hmm. I'm just looking at the list of investors. Silver Lake, the private equity giant, Fidelity, Qualcomm, some uncomfortable associations today, depending on what we hear from the U.S. Treasury and, and how this company decides to proceed. Exactly. You've got very big name U.S. shareholders on that list. If this comes through, this will definitely pose a problem for their co companies. This is also going to likely complicate the imminent IPO of this company in Hong Kong. According to the Financial Times, some traders are already warning that the IPO in Hong Kong could be delayed as investors have growing unease, which is no surprise here. It is supposed to price its shares for this Hong Kong IPO on Friday, and given the current price range, it would value the company at about $17 billion on the top end of the range. Julia. Yes, we shall see. Selena Wang, thank you so much for that. 
OK, let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. A trailer truck carrying dozens of migrants has crashed in Mexico, killing at least 54 people and leaving more than 100 injured. Officials say most of the victims had come from Central American nations. It's not immediately clear why they were crammed inside the truck or what caused it to flip over. WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange could be extradited to the United States after a British court overturned a previous decision that prevented the move. The British Home Secretary is now expected to review the extradition request and make the final decision. Lawyers for Assange, who is charged with espionage by the U.S., say they will seek to appeal to the U.K. Supreme Court. New revelations today on the alleged Christmas party at Number 10 Downing Street last year. ITV News say the Prime Minister's Deputy Communications Director at the time gave out mock awards to staff at the party. ITV says up to 50 people were at the event, which took place while the UK government told people not to mix indoors outside their support bubble. Our Salma Abdelaziz has been following the story. Salma, and, and let's be clear, the former Deputy Communications Director is now the current deputy communications director and the person that arguably is promoting the message that we're not sure whether this party allegedly took place, the allegations saying he was there handing out awards. Exactly, Julia. Let's go through this allegation because it's quite a serious one. This is the chief of press, essentially, for the prime minister. And the accusation is here that he was at a Christmas party at December 18th, that he gave an impromptu speech to up to 50 people in attendance and handed out awards. Uh, you can only imagine that this is just yet another detail, another turn of the screw that turns up that pressure on Prime Minister Boris Johnson, because it's now becoming almost impossible for any member of the public to believe that parties, parties plural, were going on at 10 Downing Street, the Prime Minister's residence and offices, with his senior staff during a lockdown last year, and somehow the Prime Minister did not know about it. It's simply not flying in the court of public opinion. So what we're going to see happen next here is Prime Minister Boris Johnson really fight for his survival. There's an internal investigation going on, led by his, uh, by his own staff, of course, and that already begins to bring in questions. Can they independently review? And it seems that members of his own staff are, of course, in attendance at these multiple social gatherings, parties, whatever the term is that we want to use now. So Prime Minister Boris Johnson here really has a reputational issue, first and foremost within the Conservative Party, because this is not his first scandal. So the question is, will his party continue to support him, back him through yet another scandal, or does the tide begin to turn? Now, there's no election in this country scheduled for a few more years, but if MPs begin to feel pressure at home, at a local level, from their own voters, that's when you can begin to see that the Conservative Party could start to question his moral authority, his ability to lead, and that's where you could possibly, again, it's not going to happen overnight, but you could see that vote of no confidence call, Julia. How it's being discussed, very quickly, Salma, as being a, a sort of fight for survival. To your point, he's been through many scandals and questions have been raised many times. Admittedly, this comes in a week where the UK government's saying, sorry, guys, we have to step up these restrictions once again. But is he really in a fight for survival? I think there is absolutely no doubt that he is in a fight for survival, a fight for survival within his own party, a fight for survival in the court of public opinion. Again, not his first scandal. But I do have to caveat all of this with 
This is a man, like him or love him, that I think everyone in this country agrees has nine lives. They've even earned a nickname, the Tories here, Teflon Tories, for their ability to wear one scandal after another, after another. But this one, Julia, this really gets to the heart of what people are angry about. It's not the first time that people have accused this government of elitism, of acting above the law, of setting rules that they themselves do not apply to their own conduct, to their own actions. So you're really at a moment here where MPs are going to begin to worry about their own seats of power. They're going to begin to worry about their own position. And when that happens, that's when you can potentially see a sea change, Julia. Yeah, that Teflon most definitely being tested at this moment. Salma Abdelaziz, thank you for that. Okay, still to come here on First Move, precision engineered pills. UK Pharmatech using artificial intelligence to design healthcare drugs. And Steve Aoki is A-OK about NFTs. I get his take on those and the metaverse. We'll explain, don't worry. That's all coming up. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move and the Wall Street Bulls looking past another heated read on US inflation with consumer prices rising 6.8% year over year to a 39-year high. Futures pointing to a strong open, though, across the board. It's no and nothing we don't already know. Inflation, of course, a global concern, though, too, with Brazil raising interest rates a seventh straight time on Wednesday of this week. Poland hiking rates for a third time. And China reporting another uptick in food inflation this week, too. In the meantime, workers' rights also in shareholder sites. Shares of European food delivery firms like Deliveroo pulling back in today's session. The European Commission moving closer to recognizing gig workers as full-time employees and therefore deserving benefits. That's not how the business model works, of course, or at least for now. Also today, a latte of labor challenges for Starbucks. For the first time ever, Starbucks workers at an upstate New York store have voted to unionize a move that could force the chain to hike wages further. In the meantime, COVID infections are rising fast in parts of Asia Pacific in Australia. The state of New South Wales has just reported its highest daily case count in two months. CNN's Paula Hancock has more on the outbreak across the region. COVID-19 cases here in Australia's most populous city, Sydney, are starting to creep up once again. In this state of New South Wales, over 500 new cases, and that hasn't happened since early October. Now, officials saying one of the main reasons for that is because you are coming to the end of the year. There are a lot of holiday parties, and so many of these cluster infections are happening in pubs and in clubs. But still, the hospitalizations are fairly low. And the reason for that is the high level of vaccination here. In New South Wales alone, uh, some 93% of those aged 16 and over are fully vaccinated. Now, things aren't looking quite so good in South Korea. At this point, uh, we see a, a very grim milestone being reached that over half a million cases have now been recorded. And critical cases uh, are still hovering around record highs. The number of new cases, over 7,000 for the third day in a row. Officials say that they are trying to find more ICU beds. It's not simply the beds they have to find, though. It is the doctors and the nurses who are able to man those ICU beds as well. And officials tell us that many of those who are in hospital at this point are over the age of 60. They would have been vaccinated early on 
in the process and they are making sure that they can rush these booster shots out as quickly as possible. The Prime Minister announcing that uh, anyone can have a booster shot over the age of 18 uh, as long as the second shot was just three months ago. So they're trying to, to shorten the gap between those shots. Uh, and also when we look at China, they have uh, also reported another 60 cases in seven cities, but they are still holding on to that uh, zero COVID policy, one of the very few countries in the world still to try and do that. Paula Hancock's CNN, Sydney, Australia. And the head of Thai Airways says the new Omicron variant is a concern as the airline focuses on recovery, as he discussed with Richard Quest. We are keeping close watch on that. So far, so good. So far that we have seen some cancellation, not so much because in the end, I think it really depends on the reactions of the various countries. We notice very clearly that if any country locks down, then obviously you see a lot of cancellation. Um, you, if you see both countries' destination, origin, open up, then the number of passengers go up tremendously. So far, we haven't seen um, severe lockdown in Europe or in countries around here yet. And what about, I mean, the Thai authorities did the sandbox. Yes. Which was quite successful, difficult, but it quite successful. Mm. Now you have the Thai pass. Are you satisfied? Fairly satisfied, although I would really prefer if there are f fewer rules and regulations, but I suppose maybe that's asking a bit too much, even given that Omicron is here, it's unclear what the effect would be. You come to Bangkok, there's a sort of really one-day quarantine, which is not so bad. That, that I think passengers can accept. It was 14-day quarantine. That was terrible. What will Thai Airways look like once the rehabilitation is over? Well, actually, Thai Airways is already looking quite different at the moment because in the process of rehabilitation, you have to transform and reform the work process of the airline. Already we are seeing a smaller workforce. We had cut down the staff by 50%. Um, the airline is a lot more efficient. The quality of service, the seats in flight entertainment will be more consistent among the aircrafts because, you know, previously some aircrafts had flat bed, some aircraft had terrible declining bed. Now everything will be flat bed for the long haul. That is looking at, in a sense, of bringing the cost down. That looks at one side of the equation. Yes. Which is an important side, I'll grant you if you can get your cost base down. But from an airline model perspective, what will Thai be? Thai Airways initially will be probably going back to where we were before COVID, but a lot more efficient. Will be, our network will be good at the moment. The best network is probably in Europe. Our problem at the moment, I think, is that many countries are still close to visitors, particularly in Asia. You can't go to China, Japan, Hong Kong, um, and also neighboring countries here. Only um, Cambodia is open recently. Singapore will be open on the 14th of uh, December. Now, initially, we will go back to where we were with networks, with frequent flights to all these destinations. With 57 aircrafts, I think that that will be um, all we can do at the moment. Where do you fit into the aviation 
architecture between the very powerful Gulf carriers, Qatar Etihad Emirates, and the highly efficient low-cost carriers, Air Asia and the like? Well, for the long haul, we don't have the low-cost airline flying Air Asia doesn't fly to, to Europe. Um, but for the Gulf carrier, if you come from Europe to Bangkok, you have to change the Middle East. Thai Airways has direct flight, and that is a lot more convenient for passengers. Now, it, it, it's terrible to be woken up at night to change um, in Dubai or Qatar or whatever. That, that's the first reason. The second reason with COVID, you know, who knows, you might contract COVID during transit. And it's also more environmentally friendly because CO2 emission for direct flights is less than taking a flight where you stop in the Middle East. But they can beat you on price every time because the, the power of their route networks and their ability to yield management discount. But then with our lower cost, we will be more competitive. And also, I think our network uh, to send passengers to neighboring countries, to Yangon, to Vientiane or whatever, is the best for airlines around here, I'm pretty sure. The chief of Thai Airways there. We're back after this with the market open. Welcome back to First Move and the opening bell on Wall Street there in a renewable energetic lift for stocks. Today we are higher for the fourth time this week. Shares rising even as new data shows consumer inflation rising to 39-year highs last month. It did come in as expected though and that's key. Speculation now growing that the Federal Reserve could begin raising rates as soon as the spring of 2022. A big stock gainer Thursday was Brazilian fintech firm Newbank. Remember, we spoke to them. Shares closed up some 15% after its New York Stock Exchange debut. The Warren Buffett-backed firm is now valued at around $50 billion. You heard the CEO of the company talk about the deal right here on First Move, of course, yesterday. Contrast that with the market debut of media firm BuzzFeed, which went public in a special purpose acquisition company deal this week, too. The company shares falling for a fourth straight session Thursday, down some 40% since Monday. Now, after nearly two years of battling a global pandemic, the world remains unprepared for the next one. That's according to the latest global health security report that says most nations are still unable to handle even small outbreaks. But what if we could react quicker and more efficiently next time? Well, that's part of the mission of Accentia. It's a pharmatech firm that uses artificial intelligence to precision engineer drugs, cutting the amount of time to develop those drugs by up to 80%. Now, that includes potential treatments for coronaviruses of the future, Alzheimer's and even one-day cancers. The company's founder and CEO, Andrew Hopkins, believes all drugs will be designed by AI by 2030. And I'm pleased to say he joins us now. Andrew, fantastic to have you on the show. Um, I know you've been working at this for uh, just over a decade and it began at 2 a.m. in the morning, I believe, walking home from the lab and you were like, we have to be able to do this in a more efficient way. Just explain the vision and the work you're doing there. Oh, absolutely, Julie. It's a pleasure to be here today. Yeah, I remember that exact moment, walking home from the lab in Oxford about 2 a.m., our time was to try and design HIV drugs. And every, since then, everything we've done has been a mission of how we can use technology to accelerate the creation of new medicines far faster. And you mentioned at the start uh, with a, a pharmatech. In fact, we were the world's first pharmatech. And that's about combining 
equally technology and drug hunting. It means actually how Accentia is using artificial intelligence to improve every aspect of drug creation, from how we identify which patients the drugs should go into, to actually using AI to design drugs as well. You know, one of the things you said to me before we came into this interview is 96% of drugs in human trials fail. Um, the risk reward, therefore, of even entering human trials is so incredibly skewed. Part of the, the benefit here is if we can use artificial intelligence to analyze the data better and go into human trials with far more information, then you dramatically change the economics of, of that point of entry, which for me feels like a game changer ultimately for patient care, for the quality of patient care, which I know is fundamental to sort of your belief system of what you're trying to achieve here too. It is. If we look at economic history, it's shown us that inherently more productive systems ultimately become dominant practice in industry. What we've done now, we use now AI-driven approaches. We've now designed seven drug candidates, three of which now are the first AI-designed drugs in human clinical trials. And from the productivity we've gained so far, it really gives us confidence that this is probably the most efficient way to discover new medicines. And ultimately, we think that then will become the dominant way of doing things. Hence, that's where we believe ultimately all drugs will be designed by AI. But think about it, the wealth of data that we now have available to us and that knowledge is far greater than any human can actually comprehend. So what we're doing then is using AI so we can bring to bear all of that data into all of our design decision making so we can precision engineer that drug against many different parameters to make sure it's we're not just designing drugs faster, but also designing better drugs as well. Yeah, more efficient drugs. And actually, that goes to, I know, the core area that you're focused on, which is precision oncology. So how do we best treat cancer patients, look at their genetic makeup, look at what cancer we're treating? And you've published work, I know, on, on blood cancers, too. How far are we from the point where we can identify a cancer in a patient and go, we can precision engineer a treatment that's going to be the most effective for, for treating them? One of the key steps Accenti has done now is that we've shown how we can lead the way into creating truly personalized drug cancer therapies for individual patients. Only a few weeks ago, we published our uh, groundbreaking paper on a precision medicine platform. The first trial of its kind, really, that's shown that an AI machine learning approach can significantly improve outcomes for late-stage cancer patients, as you said, in blood cancers. And that was in a prospective clinical trial. We saw 30% improvement compared to of um, better outcomes by drugs selected by our single cell AI approaches compared to a physician alone. So this we think is an incredible advance actually, but we're working to demonstrate now beyond blood cancers, how we can show that this, it can be used for personalized screening for a wide range of different cancer types. Ultimately, you can imagine a world where this personalized drug screening, it can be applied actually for, and should be available to every cancer patient. Yeah, and, and that goes to a bigger point, and I'll circle back to this, the sort of inequality that we see in all forms of treatments around the world. And we've seen that, I think, most clearly in the last 18 months with what we've seen with access to vaccines for, for COVID-19. And this is where you caught my attention, because I know you, and you have some huge investors, quite frankly, like SoftBank, but the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation also um, got involved because part of the, the belief is that, and we've seen this with the variant, the Omicron variant, we shouldn't have to have uh, back to the drawing board. Let's tweak these vaccines to try and understand which variant we're tackling. We should be able to develop a broad spectrum anti-coronavirus agent. And that's part of, I think, how we can use artificial intelligence, we hope, currently and in the future to create something again that's more efficient. 
Absolutely. I don't want to sort of uh, break out this answer into sort of two important areas. The first one is that we're using a sort of AI-led approach and how we can think about our ability to precision engineer broad spectrum antivirals. How what were specific parameters we believe to be an optimal treatment? It has to be a, a, a drug that actually is not just uh, overcomes susceptibility to the current mutations we have in the variants, but more importantly also is broad spectrum, hitting a wide variety of potential other coronaviruses has to be something that's going to have much better sort of uh, administration to patients, but importantly, also a small molecule drug that can be globally distributed so that everyone can have access to this, especially in developing countries. That's a key focus as well of the Gates project. But one thing we think about actually, and this is a work where the Gates has been expanded, is how can we future-proof ourselves as a society? How can we actually develop drugs against potential future pandemics and be prepared for it? not only just developing broad spectrum coronavirus agents, but against other potential pandemic threats we face, such as influenza, killed 100 million people or just over 100 years ago, and also emerging new threats like Nipah virus. Nipah virus has a death rate of about 75%. Currently, uh, it has animal to human transmission. It's been sort of a scourge of parts of Southeast Asia. But if that ever became a human-to-human transmission, it could be actually a very dangerous virus indeed. Yeah, and and you know we talk about COVID nineteen and have done nonstop for the last eighteen months. But and you said this to me, and it was such an important reminder that we've had SARS and we've had MERS. Just the West didn't really focus on them because they happened in other parts of the world. We've had too many pandemics, and we need to react to them sooner and quicker and and more efficiently too. Um, I've mentioned big investors. You also just IPO'd. Um, I'm sure big tech needs to be looking at this and is looking at this already. Um, why stay independent? Andrew, because I'm sure you had some amazing offers from from Big Pharma. Why IPO? Why go it alone? What is it about what you're achieving here that you think requires that you remain independent? Because you are, I think, disrupting the approach for drug development in many critical ways. Absolutely, Julia. And you're absolutely right. We debuted on NASDAQ on uh, 1st of October, a 510 million IPO raise. And Accentia is leading the way of how we can AI can transform the farm industry. And to do so that we were building an end-to-end platform. In fact, it's been nearly 10 years in development of building this company. And to do so, that combination of equally tech and equally drug hunting is important because it's actually more than about the technology. It's about ultimately how you bring the technology together into an AI-first process that's patient-centric and actually is technology-driven. So, in fact, it's not just about applying some algorithms into an existing process inside sort of existing large pharma companies, but ultimately, if we want to transform this industry, we believe actually you need to take an AI-first approach to re-engineer the entire process of how we think about drug creation. Yeah, and the beauty of this as well, I know you're doing work on Alzheimer's. We mentioned oncology, um, drugs to help with mental health as well. So it's scalable across um, all sorts of industries. And you, I never have enough time on this show, and this is no exception. Um, come back and talk to us soon, please, because I want to track your progress on what you're seeing with the drugs that you have in development, because you also have a huge pipeline too. Um, and you, a huge pleasure. Excellent. Thank you for joining us on the show. Julia, thanks for time today. Thank you. Andrew Hopkins there. Okay, up next. A man of the future, the one and only Steve Aoki. His primer for non-fungible tokens, NFTs, and the metaverse is next. And don't worry, we'll explain. <laughs> Stay with us.
Welcome back to First Move, and it's Steve Aoki time, and I'm very excited to introduce this two-part interview. The superstar DJ and content king is considered, I think, a creative visionary. From the late Steve Jobs to the rapper Will I Am, we're talking about influencers who signpost the future of technology and the content people choose to consume. Now, I chose Will I Am because Steve Aoki has collaborated with him, along with a constellation of other stars, from Backstreet Boys to BTS, recently. He's decided to delve into the world of NFTs and the metaverse. Now, one of my favorite challenges this year has been trying to explain the interest and the meaning of those non-fungible tokens. Well, here's Saturday Night Live's alternative explanation. If I had to explain NFTs, I'd probably say that. Hey, here's the thing about NFTs. It's a non-fungible token, you see. Non-fungible means that it's unique. There can only be one like you and me. NFTs are insane. insane. Built on a blockchain, right. a digital ledger of transactions. It records information on what's happening. When it's minted, you can sell it as art. And this concludes my rapping part. I think that's definitely better than anything I did. Now, after that, if you still think NFTs are a fad, bear in mind one estimate put sales this year at nearly $40 billion. And looking at the NFT universe, I asked Steve Aoki how we separate good from bad. <laughs> It's the wild, wild west. It, it is to this point where there will be, in the future, there will only be the Google, the Tesla. You know, just like the same way that we look at how things have evolved to this point with certain technologies. There's always only a few that really make it, the Microsofts, the Apples, you know, and everyone else kind of subsides or dies down or jumps into the bigger groups. And that's exactly what's happening now. We're at the beginning of a new frontier. And the barrier of entry to enter into the space is so low that it allows for so many different people to also participate, good and bad. Mm. Bad in the case that there's 99% of, the, uh, of, these, of these projects will end up at zero and or 98%, you know, I mean, I'm sure there's been more projects that will survive. Uh, um, good that it allows for people to also feel like they can be a creator. It allows for more innovation, more ideas. It allows for more, you know, like where we, where you are the architect. Like you're not just a, a, a participant. Because I am a collector. I am a buyer. I, I look at what I see. I see, hey, this really gives me a really valuable service I'd never experienced before. And I think it I think it can help evolve what we're doing in this space. I'm also a creator. And I also want to participate in the in what the innovation looks like. So I, you could do both in this space. Yeah, which is one of the beauties of it. But I want to talk to you as the um, investor creator at this moment. Um, how do you identify what's going to be a winner? How do we identify the NFT equivalents, as you said, of the Amazons, the Googles and the Teslas? What do, what do people who aren't so involved and sophisticated in this space, what do they have to look for? With NFTs and the culture behind NFTs, I've never experienced the level of community that NFTs have serviced. So when I say community, it's like we're all essentially part of a community. If you invest into a company, a stock into a company, like you buy some stocks of, of Nike or what whatnot that you buy, you are essentially part of their community. And then 
and then Nike will will, will announce, okay, guys, every all the all the shareholders, this is what we're doing to innovate our company. And you're like, oh, this is great. I want to invest more. Oh, I don't like this. I'm going to pull out. Right. That's community. In NFTs, that work community is so important and it's so transparent. Now, the metaverse is a red hot topic this year, and the idea of an alternative virtual universe is kind of like Marmite or Vegemite, yuck or yum. You either love it or you hate it. Now, Steve Aoki is definitely a lover, so much so he's been performing virtual sets like this one in Fortnite with a global reach of over 2 billion people. This is definitely waking you up. Now, I know EDM fans will be loving this, including Tanya and Chris on my team. I asked Steve, though, how Fortnite and Minecraft paved the road to the metaverse and what comes next. And I should warn you, there are flashing lights in this interview, too. When you say Minecraft and Fortnite, what that really tells you is generational. And mm. the future is in the youth. The, the youth are already part of it. It's part of their conversation, their the way they socialize, or what they do when they get home from school. Uh, it, it's, you know, Roblox is another uh, another familiar world that, that, that kids are jumping into and socializing and interacting. And and the the, the older, the boomers, the, you know, the older generation, um, you know, Facebook is m more of a social network, right? And look what Facebook's doing now. It's finally allowing for everyone else that's part of that world, which a huge majority of the population is, to be like, hey, this is where the future is going. This is where people will be uh, not just socially conversating and, and, and engaging with each other. This is where the economy will start transacting money, currency, NFTs, uh, where blockchain conversations and spending money in the blockchain uh, through ETH or, or, you know, I'm sure Bitcoin might jump in or other different blockchain technologies where you spend money in that space will become very normal. And this is the start. And if you get in now and you start transacting and start doing certain things and start kind of, you know, in, in a way, you know, if you're, you're crossing the wild, wild west, right, from the East Coast, like the <laughs> what I used to play when I was a little kid. You know, and you set up camp and you start building your city and you start like, you know, creating your world. And if people really want to join into your neighborhood in a way, that's kind of like what we're doing. You know, I think the people like me, that's like, oh, wow, I see you're prospecting certain areas and you're like, oh, it's be cool to do this with, uh, you know, with this kind of concept. And if people love it, they'll join in, start building more concepts. And soon you have, you know, this metaverse city neighborhood and this junction of ideas that that form with yours and you could build and build economy and yeah. build a lifestyle you know I, I feel like my parents will be watching this going my generation went out there and lived and to some degree in the past two years we've all been stuck at home and to your point as well i think it is a generational thing where kids love computer games so they love playing and interacting and they've done that now um for for many years um what does it mean socially? I mean, particularly for you. I mean, you're a DJ, you're out there. Nothing surely compares to performing in front of a live audience and having that interaction. But you can also do this digitally and perform on Fortnite to what, a couple of billion people, or at least they can engage with you. What does it mean for society 
is it a net positive, the sort of virtual metaverse that we're creating relative to engaging face to face? Of course, there's nothing that compares to a live concert with real people <laughs> in front of you. you know, okay, like, good. You I'm glad. You can't take that away. <laughs> okay. you, you just can't take it away. Uh, but that's the way the world is going. Mm. And I mean, it's, this is how people will socially interact. It's not, I, I think the, the thing that's scary for people that don't engage in this space is that they're like, Oh no, this is the only way people interact with each other. That's not the case. You know, it's like it, people, we, we all need, we're social species. We always need to be social. This is going to be a large part on how we do it when we're home. When we go outside and we go to the supermarket, when we go to the parties, when we go to the, to, you know, do nightlife, dinners. I mean, of course we're going to be doing that as we do, as we live our lives. But, you know, I mean, it's clear we are becoming more of a digital, the way the way in which we are social is more digital. Mm. Just by the fact that, that we rely so much on our phones, we rely so much on engaging with people through social media, these things are already setting up where we're going. So it's, uh, you know, I, I like to live in both worlds. And, you know, and I'm, right now I'm setting up camp in the metaverse. So this is the perfect pivot and way to end this conversation. Can we please talk about your mother? Because your mother, I think, is one of your super fans. And I see her on Instagram and she's got the most amazing smile. And I believe you bought her a Tesla, which she looked incredibly excited about. How important is your mom? She's she's my entire heart, you know. Yeah. She's she's my rock. She's pretty much everything for me, you know. This is, I, I like, you know, I I am a man of the future, so of course <laughs> I had to get her a Tesla. Um, she's not ready for the self driving uh, option. I try I try to do that while she's driving. She's like she's like what what no no you know. Oh, she's just adorable. Steve Aoki there and plenty of room for parental praise and appreciation on this show. I get to hug mine. Fingers crossed for the first time in two years next week. More first news after the break. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number Smart Beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.